We're very blessed to have such a core of committed musicians to lead us in music worship, and I'm really thankful for that. Uh, that line we just sang, that God is brighter than the moon and the stars, that's from the Bible. And the reason it says that, because what that saying is, is to a polytheistic culture in the world that believes in multiple gods, it's saying that God is brighter than the gods of the moon and the gods of the stars, that he outdoes them. And just a little preaching note, just so you know what's happening. Um, I'm going to be opening the conference Friday night. I'm going to be preaching from Genesis 1 on what Genesis 1 meant to the original listener, the original hearer. That's important for us to understand because our, our modern interpretation of Genesis 1 has all but forgotten that. So I'm going to set that foundation. Then in that same session, Dr. Terry Mortensen will be coming to us from Answers in Genesis. And then I'm also going to close out the conference Sunday morning here at Grace Bible Church, and I'll be going through parts of the entire Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, to show that anything other than then creation from nothing is ridiculous. And the Pentateuch makes any idea of evolution, including theistic evolution, by the way, absolutely ludicrous. So we're going to get to book in the conference here uh, this weekend, and very, very excited about that. Well, we've been examining John chapters 10 and 11, kind of an interesting way to do this, I think, as an argument against the pseudo-Christian publications of Sarah Young, which continue to take the Church of Jesus Christ by storm. 20 million copies plus sold of Jesus Calling and her other books, which claim to recount the very words of Jesus Christ spoken to her personally over the years and now published at great, great, uh, bringing great wealth both to her and to Thomas Nelson Publishers. But what we've seen over the past weeks is that in John 10 and John 11, we see a very different Jesus than the feminized Jesus of Sarah Young, who really, the Jesus of Jesus calling sounds more like a New Age Disney princess than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's very feminine. The, the Jesus of Jesus calling would be great to invite to a tea, but not very good for saving the world. And again, I'll point you back to the first message in this series for a detailed analysis that we need to be discerning when it comes to Jesus calling, when it comes to similar pseudo-Christian literature, that just because a bunch of pieces of paper are stuck between two pieces of cardboard and sold in a Christian bookstore does not make it orthodox. Well, in fact, our text today reveals Jesus Christ in a way that is really completely foreign to the Jesus of Jesus calling, the real voice of Christ in John chapter 11, is nothing like Sarah's young Jesus, which does bring us to our text for today. It's John 11, beginning in verse 28, and we'll go through verse 37 today. And I kind of have to start here, because in our text today is the usual answer to one of the greatest Bible trivia questions of all time, and that question is, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? And the answer, of course, always is, Jesus wept in John 11.35. And it seems that preachers are obligated by some invisible law of preaching that if you don't mention that Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible, then you have violated a cardinal commandment and maybe have even threatened the security of your salvation if you don't mention that. So let's talk about this. This has been put forward as a, as a special fact that is meant to really encapsulate 
the entire true character of Jesus Christ in just one sentence. Entire articles and sermons have been given stating how special it is that God made Jesus wept the shortest verse in the Bible and that it so completely describes the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me do my duty according to the invisible law of preaching and talk about Jesus wept for a moment. John 11.35 is just two words in English, three words in the original Greek text, 16 total letters in Greek, which means it is the shortest verse by letter count in the English Bible. It is not the shortest verse in the Bible. It's not even the shortest verse in the New Testament. The shortest verse by word count is a tie between 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and verse 17. Each of them are two words in Greek, translated rejoice always and pray without ceasing. The shortest verse by letter count is Luke 20, verse 30, and this is going to bless your soul. It says, and the second, and that's it, (laughs) just 12 letters in Greek. But the shortest verse in the Bible beats all of them. First Chronicles 125, just nine Hebrew letters, part of a genealogy which says in verse 25, Eber, Peleg, and Ru. And that brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> but no one's writing articles or preaching sermons on that God has encapsulated the personality of Messiah in Eber, Peleg, Ru. And with the exception of the book of Psalms, which does not really technically have chapters, Psalms doesn't have chapters, it has individual songs, they're named Psalms. With that exception, the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible are not part of the inspired text of Scripture. So to say that God gave us the shortest verse in the Bible is technically true, he just didn't call it that. There, the, the, the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible, they're like the address number painted on the curb in front of your house. Very helpful, but not really part of the house, okay? The chapter divisions of the Bible were first developed by a guy named Stephen Langdon. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury around 1227 AD. The verse divisions of the Old Testament were developed by a rabbi named Nathan around 1448 AD. And the verse divisions of the New Testament were developed by Robert Estienne, more commonly known as Stephanus, around 1555. The Geneva Bible of the 16th century published those chapter and verse divisions, and they've become standard for every Bible translation since then. In fact, sometimes when scholarship has shown that a verse or two should not be included in the original text, your Bible will skip the number. It doesn't renumber the verses because the tradition is so strong. All that being said, this particular verse division in John 11.35 does nothing to assist you in understanding the text. It's nothing more than an interesting, semi-accurate fact. So I've done my duty. I have fulfilled the invisible law of preaching. And now we can move on to actually look at the text. But we are going to examine Jesus wept in detail in its context in just a little bit. Well, let's get caught up to where we've been. We've been walking with Jesus on the road from the north country where John the Baptist has been uh, or had been previously ministering. And now Jesus is walking south. He's going about 100 miles to the village of Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus has been summoned by the sisters Mary and Martha to help with their sick brother Lazarus, but in order to glorify himself, And to increase the faith of his disciples, Jesus waited until Lazarus had actually died to begin the four-day walk to Bethany. Martha, the oldest sister, she heard that Jesus was near and she 
uncharacteristic of somebody who is in mourning. She left her home. She went out on the road and she met Jesus on the way, met him on the road for a private conversation. And Jesus taught her, and we saw last time, encouraged her to greater faith. And through his conversation with her, he elicited from Martha this great confession of faith found in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Her faith wasn't very mature yet. It was coming along since Jesus would actually, when he would actually begin the process of raising Lazarus from the dead, the person who actually protested was Martha, and she tried to stop him in verse 39. We saw that many mourners, many well-wishers have come from surrounding villages and from Jerusalem to come and mourn with this well-to-do, wealthy family. And the scene at the family home is one of weeping, it's one of consolation, it's one of sadness. And we're on day four, which historically and traditionally was the greatest, the, the height of mourning and weeping and wailing. But now, after her confession of faith, embryonic though it was, Jesus has told Martha that he wants to see Mary. He wants to see her little sister. Mary seems to be a tender soul. She's at the family home grieving. She is the one who was so enamored with Christ in Luke chapter 10 that she decided helping Martha in the kitchen wasn't worth the effort, and she sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. And she's the one that shortly in John chapter 12 would anoint the feet of Jesus with with ointment, expensive ointment, humbly wiping his feet with her hair in honor and in tribute of his coming death. And so Jesus has sent for Mary most likely to get her away from the house. There would have been people there, all kinds of people. Get her away from all the mourners and the friends and the family so that he can have a private conversation with her as well. Now, we can read ahead and we can say, well, nobody would be sad if you would just look at the next couple of paragraphs. We understand that Jesus fully intends to raise Lazarus from the dead, but the point of this story is that nobody else is getting that yet. They're not understanding this. Mary certainly doesn't know this. And this is where we pick up now in verse 28. When she, that is Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. How encouraging, how comforting must it have been for Jesus to come During this time of grief, Mary was eager to see the Lord. Mary was always enthusiastic to see Jesus. Every time we see her, she's eager to see him. And so she rose quickly. And then John gives us a a geographical notation in verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Martha met Jesus while he was still walking on the road to Bethany, and they they had their conversation on the road, maybe still walking, maybe just resting outside the village after a long day's walk. But the private meeting wasn't going to turn out to be private at all. Verse 31, When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rising quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And so the Jews, many of whom had come from Jerusalem to mourn with the family, these would be friends, these would be families, uh, family members as well, they, they followed Mary to go weep with her, doing, as Romans 12 says, to do weeping with those who weep. And so that would have been very natural. 
So now the, the scene that plays out, keep in mind that there's a crowd watching this. And, and this scene in front of all these witnesses, in front of all these mourners, it, this tender moment now plays out in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died she fell at his feet. It's a word in Greek that means literally to drop to your knees at someone's, at someone's feet, to go down even to your face. But this word is often used in the New Testament to speak of worship. It goes along with worship words and worship moments. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men fell down, same word, and worshiped Christ. Peter, James, and John, they fell, same word, on their faces in worship at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 18. Jairus, the synagogue leader, fell at the feet of Jesus in Matthew or Mark 5 rather, to beg for his daughter's life. In Luke 5, a man with leprosy fell at the feet of Jesus to beg for healing and to worship him. And when Jesus answered the arresting party in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they said, where is Jesus? He said, I am he, and they fell to the ground in what we might call an involuntary act of honor of Christ. Romans 1.17, at the sight of the glorified Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul fell at his feet as though dead. And in Romans 4, believers in heaven are pictured as falling down before the throne of God, before the throne of Christ. And so Mary is in very good company in demonstrating exactly the right thing to do, to fall down in worship and utter powerlessness as a shattered person before the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33 tells us that she was weeping. This is a word that means to wail or to lament loudly. The word has an emphasis on the sounds that are made while crying. This isn't a quiet, private tear in the eye. This is all-out, gut-wrenching, uncontrollable sobbing. The sobbing of grief, and through her sobbing, she said almost exactly the same thing Martha said when she saw Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And like Martha, we want to make it very clear that this was a statement of great faith in Christ. This wasn't a complaint. It was just a, a factual observation that people don't drop dead when Jesus is in the room. That he keeps them alive. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so people are alive around him. What a beautiful and a needful act in the midst of distress that when you're at the end of yourself, you collapse at the feet of Jesus in worship. Now, by traditional Jewish custom, even a, even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. And we might think that's a little bit strange, but we actually kind of do the same thing. When a loved one dies, we use musicians in a funeral service to assist our grief. And the mortuary that we employ, they always have people who are appropriately somber and express their sincere condolences. And so that's not unusual, really. But this was not a poor family. This was a wealthy family. We've already demonstrated that. And so, doubtlessly, among their friends and their family were also a, an entire core of professional grievers, so to speak. So, everything that's happening now is in front of friends, is in front of family, is in front of people who have been hired. There's music going on. This is a, a loud, big occasion. And now Jesus is emotionally moved at the sight of the weeping of 
Mary and the mourners, the wailing and the sobbing of grief. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And so Jesus asked a question, which he already knows the answer to as sovereign God. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, they were very respectful. They said to him, Lord, come and see. He already knew the answer to that question, but he's setting up the crowd to follow him to the tomb because what he's about to do with Lazarus will be done in front of a large crowd, beginning in verse 38. And in his full and complete humanity, verse 35 says, simply, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The emotion welling up in him now is being expressed right in front of Mary and and all the mourners Some of the mourners didn't know exactly what to make of it. Some of them said that Jesus was weeping because of his great love for Lazarus. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. And there is some precedent for this. When the sisters sent for Jesus, all the way back in verse 3, the message they sent to him was, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. In verse 11, Jesus calls Lazarus, my friend, our friend. And so that view is very plausible. See how he loved him. See how he misses him. See how he grieves his death. Other mourners who didn't know what to make of Jesus weeping, they said that maybe he was weeping because he came too late. Oh, if he had only been here a little bit earlier. And they said in verse 37, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And certainly the the compassion and the the great empathy of Christ here is on display. The the sadness around the death of Lazarus is obvious. It's apparent. And so what was happening here? Well, as one commentator wrote, John means for the modern reader to see a picture here of how much Jesus loves all of us. Another writer says, Jesus shed tears out of compassion for the bereaved. It greatly saddened Jesus to see his beloved friends stricken with grief. He was moved by his deep love and compassion for his friends. Another writer says, Christ exemplifies kindness, compassion, and charity in this situation. And these are warm sentiments which paint a pleasant and a kind picture of Christ. And which all completely miss the point of the text. Those particular commentators on John 11.35 are, in order of appearance, Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormon. And yet their interpretation of Jesus wept agrees exactly with the often typical understanding that you hear in any American evangelical church that Lazarus is just sad for Mary and for the mourners because of the death of Lazarus. Yes, there's certainly an element of sadness involved, but Jesus is about to raise him from the dead and he's the one who let him die. So that doesn't make any sense. So why did Jesus weep? What can we glean from the text itself to understand what was really behind this weeping? In verse 35, where Jesus wept, the the verb wept is different than the one used of Mary and and different than the one used of the Jews. In fact, this verb is never used anywhere else in the Gospel of John, and it's never used anywhere else in the New Testament. In other words, the idea here is, don't get this wrong. Jesus is weeping in a way that no one else ever has or ever will. This is different. We have to understand the weeping of Jesus in light of verse 33, 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What does it mean, deeply moved in his spirit? Out of tradition and tradition alone, English translations tend to soften this word. And they say deeply moved. But it literally means to snort. In extra-biblical uh, Greek literature, the word is used to speak this, of the snorting of a, of a great war horse. It speaks of being indignant. It speaks of anger. It speaks of being outraged, mixed with grief. It's used elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus uses the word himself to issue a stern warning, to scold, to warn. There is no linguistic justification to soften that word. Dr. D.A. Carson says it is lexically, meaning the study of word meaning, it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. This is not sadness. This is anger. This is outrage. And it says Jesus was greatly troubled. In Greek, if you do a, a literal wooden translation, it says he troubled himself. In other words, he made a decision that this is worth getting his ire up over. It means he was perturbed. It's a word that means he was bothered. He was agitated. So was Jesus, as some have said, openly sobbing with Mary in empathy for her pain? No. The weeping of Mary and the mourners was wailing and sobbing. The, the word, this unique word used of Jesus and Jesus alone in all the New Testament just means to shed tears. There is no emphasis on the sound that's being made. The emphasis is not on what's happening on the inside. The emphasis is what's happening on the, on the outside, rather. It's what's happening on the inside. The, this welling up of emotion, this is the shedding of tears of a man about to do battle with an enemy who has provoked him to grief and provoked him to anger. And Jesus is getting ready to do battle with death itself, to win what for any other human being is an unwinnable conflict. So why is Jesus weeping the restrained tears of a strong man about to fight? Why is he weeping the tears of outraged grief and snorting anger and being perturbed and agitated? I'd like to suggest three reasons that Jesus wept. First, the results of sin. The results of sin. The death of Lazarus and the resulting grief and anguish is really just a microcosm of a much bigger problem, and that is that mankind has been separated from God because of sin. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam was given the role of co-regent, of king of the earth as God's earthly representative. That was his role. He was to rule. He was to subdue the earth. And Adam, enjoying complete, unfeathered, and unhindered fellowship with God and worship of God with no mediator needed at all, Adam was consumed with God and God's earthly throne room, his earthly temple known in the Bible as the Garden of Eden. But because he was acting under God's sole authority, God placed Adam under a law. And the law was positively to work and to subdue the earth, Genesis 2.15, and negatively to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.16 and 17. 
And both of these, these are acts of worship to obey and to not disobey. But Adam chose not to worship. He chose to disobey, and although Eve sinned first, Adam is held responsible as the living representative of God on earth. As the New Testament says, in Adam all have sinned. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened to see that they had committed sin. They were ashamed both inwardly and outwardly. In Genesis 3, 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that is the evening. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And so instead of the unhindered fellowship they had enjoyed with God, when they heard the sound of God approaching, since in unrestricted fellowship God had manifested himself to them directly, when they heard God approaching, they hid from him. They hid from him. And so the curse of sin was introduced into the world, introduced to humanity, and God cursed Adam, our hereditary and our spiritual father, Genesis 3 records, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Key words in there. Tree, cursed, pain, thorns, sweat, dust, obviously death. God had warned Adam that if you disobey my law, you will die. But in his grace, God sacrificed animals as a temporary atonement instead of executing Adam and Eve as they deserved. And, and... Because the Garden of Eden was the place of God's presence, the Garden of Eden was the temple of God on earth, the place where the tree of life was. Genesis 3, 24 says that God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And from now on, sin would reign in the world and in mankind, fellowship with God would not be up close. It would be from a distance and only through sacrifice and only through a mediator. No more direct fellowship. Adam and Eve had enjoyed life. Now they would taste death. They had enjoyed pleasure. Now they had pain. They had abundant riches of provision. Now they would live a subsistence lifestyle of just surviving day to day. They had enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion and glory with God and with one another. And now Adam and Eve are at odds with God. They'll be at odds with one another and they'll be at odds with creation. All relationships are now marred. And now all these centuries later, God in his love for those that he would spiritually save, he has sent Jesus Christ to bridge that gap to be the mediator, to bring mankind and God together once again. Jesus comes both as God and as man, as the perfect representative for both parties. Adam and Eve should have given birth to humanity who would spend each evening celebrating their perfect communion with God and God's very presence on a beautiful, pristine earth. Instead, God had come to Adam and Eve in the evening to confront them on their sin and to announce Our fellowship 
is ended. Our fellowship is now distant. Our relationship is broken. One writer said that God was like a loving father when he confronted Adam and Eve. I don't know what universe he was in, but God came as a judge. I would wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that he came as a loving father. He was now in the role of judge and executioner, but in his grace, instead of executing Adam and Eve, he executed animals instead of Adam and Eve to temporarily satisfy his perfect justice, his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness. You see, Scripture presents God as provoked by sin, provoked to anger, provoked to righteous rage, provoked to holy indignation. And the consequences, the results of sin for mankind have been devastating. No one since Adam and Eve have, has communed directly with God. No one has. We're in need of a sacrifice for sin. We're in need of mediation. We have to have a go-between. We don't just enter into the presence of God. We have to be given permission. We have to be given access by someone else. And Jesus, yet seeing yet again firsthand, just like he saw in the Garden of Eden, by the way, the results of sin, he is furious. The first reason Jesus wept, the results of sin. It's the second reason we could say Jesus wept, the enemy of death. The enemy of death, the most horrific result of sin is the enemy of death. Death, like sin, is the enemy of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26 says this is God's enemy. And death is, is, is something against which there must be a battle, there must be a fight. Mankind has been trying to fight death for century upon century, millennia, and we keep losing every time. The Bible describes the horror of death as ropes in which you're entangled and dragged away. Psalm 18 describes it as a torrent, a flood that washes you away. Also in Psalm 18, it describes it as a snare or a trap from which there's no release. It describes death as a shadow which overwhelms you, as a terror that falls upon you, as a terrible gateway through through which everyone must walk. Ecclesiastes 8 says that death is proof of your sinfulness and your powerlessness. Hebrews 2 says that death is a greedy man who never has enough and has to keep on collecting people. The Bible very much personifies death as the enemy of God. God created Adam and Eve to live a life that didn't know death. But God warned what would happen if Adam disobeyed and death is now introduced into creation because of the wages of sin. Why death? Because God had given free and total access to this world. And if you sin against God, you will be taken from access to this world. And that is death. Adam, whom Luke 3, by the way, calls the son of God, the first created son of God, he had to experience death. Eve, the first woman the precious one that Adam loved so much, she had to experience death. Adam's son, Abel, a true worshiper of God, was murdered at the hands of his brother. And here, once again, death has now taken yet another Lazarus. Death has caused grief, has caused anguish over something that human beings are not built for. We are not built to be separated from each other in death. We're not made for that. And on and on and on it's gone. And with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, 
whom God in a very, very rare move took to heaven without death, the enemy of death has claimed the lives of all of the estimated 100 billion people that have lived on the earth. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, he is heartbroken. He is the same God spoken of in Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13, that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. And the enemy of death has overwhelmed. We can't stand. We can't be there. We can't make it. Every cemetery, every grave marker, every tomb, every urn with the ashes of the dead shouts that the enemy is winning. Listen, death, if we personify it, is about a hundred billion and O. Okay, put Enoch and Elijah in there. But death wins every time. I've heard 85-year-old men with cancer say, I'm going to beat this. No, you're not. You might beat this one, but you're not going to beat the last one. And Jesus, snortingly angry, is getting ready to confront his enemy, the great enemy of mankind. He's getting ready to stand in front of a tomb and reclaim a hostage from death. He's weeping, not just the sadness produced by death, it's the upheaval upheaval of emotion as he readies himself for battle in one of the most dramatic confrontations of his ministry. There are other times that Jesus is recorded as weeping, and did you know that he always weeps over the enemy of death? That's why he always weeps. Luke 19.41 says that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. And by the way, this weeping is with loud sobs and loud wailing. And he spoke to Jerusalem like a heartbroken father speaks to a wayward teenage daughter who's rebellious and about to receive fearful consequences. And Jerusalem would receive the consequence of death because she rejected her Messiah. Luke 19 says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. In other words, I'm here, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. See also A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 26 records Jesus falling on his face before his father in prayer over the anguish of his own impending death, his own sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews gives us commentary on what happened. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. When Jesus weeps, it is over the enemy of death. But not only is Jesus weeping over the the result of sin, the enemy of death, now looking to these mourners and even to Mary, even to Martha, he's weeping over the lack of faith. The lack of faith. In verse 37, the Jews are showing an immature, an undeveloped, and insufficient faith. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The tragedy here is not just the death of Lazarus, although that's terrible. 
The tragedy is the unbelief which leads these mourners to believe that the consequences of sin are hopelessly going to win the day. They're grieving, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, as those who have no hope. That their faith is limited. It has boundaries. Sure, Jesus healed some, some sick people, but this is death we're talking about here. They had a faith which continually needed new proofs. They had the same lacking faith as always, even though they had seen Jesus working for three years now. John 4, 48, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In John 6, beginning in verse 30, they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? By the way, who's asking Jesus that question the 5,000 people that he had just fed miraculously. And they said, that was delicious. What other sign are you going to do? And now these people here, as they're getting ready to go to the tomb of Lazarus, these people are saying, well, even Jesus can't help now. Even Jesus can't help. They're weeping, they're wailing, they're grieving hopelessly, even though right with them, I mean, literally close enough to reach out and touch, is the one in John's gospel alone who has turned water into wine, healed a sick boy from a distance, healed a paralyzed man, fed 5,000 men and their families miraculously, walked on water, healed a man born blind. And he's right here. This is the same Jesus who said, and see if you catch a theme here, John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Three verses later, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The very next verse, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Four verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Five verses later, ten verses later rather, again, I will raise him up on the last day. He's been saying this over and over again. And here they are just weeping and crying when what they should have done is smiled and said, I'll bet he's going to do something cool. They're grieving like he can do nothing about this. Yes, he could heal the blind, but nobody can raise the dead. It's very interesting to me that in her August 24th entry of Jesus Calling, Sarah Young tells us, that her Jesus said, quote, deep within themselves, most people have an awareness of my imminent presence. So she's saying that the Jesus you can't see, everyone knows he's there. I would say the opposite is true, that the Jesus you can see, they didn't even believe he was there. These people who have seen Jesus working in person for three years, they still didn't believe in him. As a matter of fact, Jesus' calling is so popular because it's supposedly another revelation of Jesus Christ speaking directly to you. What other sign do you do? All it is, though, is pandering to the same sort of people who continue to need something new, something he said today, something he did today. But John's gospel says at the end of the gospel, these signs, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And when people believe the Jesus of Jesus calling because they need yet more evidence, what does John 11 tell us that does to Jesus? It makes him angry. These have been written. Open the Bible. Believe what it says. It provokes him. And in fact, the unbelief of these mourners will arouse the outrage of Jesus again. In verse 38, same word, he will be deeply moved again, indignant, snortingly angry when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. So Jesus is weeping over the result of sin, the enemy of death, and the lack of faith. And now when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead shortly, the clock really begins ticking toward the cross, toward the sacrificial death of Christ. And what's going to happen as a result? Look ahead at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Ironically, by calling Lazarus from the grave, Jesus is walking to his own grave. By giving Lazarus life, he has just signed his own death warrant. Jesus wasn't only about to save the immediate life of Lazarus by calling him from the grave. He was on his way to the cross, just days away now, to purchase the everlasting life of Lazarus and all who would place their faith in him. You know, Jesus spoke of his own impending death with the metaphor of baptism, of being immersed in something. Listen to his emotion in Luke twelve fifty. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Because Jesus was going to experience not just physical death, in some way that is so far beyond our ability to grasp and to comprehend, Jesus would bear the wrath of God countless eternities in hell, somehow compressed into these hours of darkness on the cross, of the horror and the agony and rejection that God the Son would experience at the hands of God the Father. And listen, all the themes of Genesis 3, death, toil, sweat, curse, thorns, the tree, going to the dust of the earth, all of those themes are now taken on by Christ. Jesus is, as Paul calls him, the second Adam, the one who will undo what Adam did. He receives death. He sweat great drops of blood in the anguish of his coming death. He took the curse of sin for us. He wore a crown of thorns. He was hanged on a tree until dead. And he was placed in the dust of death. He undid it all. And it should have been you. It should have been you. Yes, Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. But the verse goes on to say, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. Payment was made in full for your sin and for mine. He gave him victory and resurrection after Christ faithfully paid the entire, complete, total price. And by the way, by his faithfulness, Jesus has now undone the three reasons he wept. First, he wept because of the result of sin, which is separation from God, loss of fellowship. But now through the mediating work of Christ to bring us into fellowship with God, we're given this amazing invitation. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the what? The throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's been decreed by heaven on your behalf, according to Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. By the cross of Christ, Jesus has undone the results of sin, the separation from fellowship. The second reason he wept was the enemy of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And because of this, here is your future. Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, by the way, nor crying, no more weeping. And the third reason he wept, the lack of faith, he's undone that as well. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In fact, the Apostle John, the author of this gospel, later on in one of his letters when he writes to the churches, he has a nickname for you. His nickname for you is you who believe in the name of the Son of God. We often shorten it just to call ourselves believers. We are believers. And in fact, some of those lacking faith in this text, look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They believed. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Jesus need weep no more. You need weep no more. Psalm 103 again. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Because he knows that you cannot stand up to death, he has stood up to death for you, and he will rescue you. Listen, Jesus wept is a very, very short verse, but the proper understanding of it leads to a very, very long eternal life. Our Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful text. We see your love, your compassion, your righteous indignation, your wrath, your power over sin, your power over death, your graciousness, your kindness. We see the beautiful attributes of Christ brought forward in 3D full color. And Lord God, we come to you now humbly thanking you so much for the Lord Jesus, who by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, by his ascension, his current ministry of intercession, he has eradicated the results of sin, he has eradicated the enemy of death, and he has eradicated lack of faith. We have been given faith to believe as a gift. And by virtue of the gift of the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, you brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And Yes, we still face the leftover consequences of sin. We still face that moment when the heart stops beating and the lungs stop working. But as the Apostle Paul said so beautifully, that to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. 
And so that momentary blink of time is nothing. Death has no victory over us. There is no sting. It has been defeated on our behalf by our champion, by our captain, our savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have nothing but thanks, nothing but gratitude, nothing but joy. For he is so gracious and magnanimous to have given us this gift, to have fought an enemy we could not defeat and to rise from the dead in total victory, paving the way for us to do the same. We thank you and we praise you for the sake of Jesus Christ and to his glory, for it is in his name we pray. Amen.